Jewish audio on Chabad.org. Rambam, Hilchais Bikurim, Mishnah Torah, Hilchais Bikurim, the laws of the first fruits, and the laws of the first fruits also segue into the balance of the 24 gifts which the Torah allocates to the Kohen. And today we learn Aleph 1, Mitzvah Asei, it is a positive commandment, that every Jewish man must redeem B'nai his son. <clears throat> this is called in the common vernacular, Pidyon Aben. Pidyon Haben, not to be confused as some people used to say here when I first got here, pig in the den. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a Pidyon Haben, a redemption of the firstborn. Firstborn from who? Shehu Becher, a firstborn son, Li'imei HaYisraelis, to this baby's Jewish mother. So when a boy is firstborn to his Jewish mother, the baby's father is obligated to redeem his son by giving the Kohen money or money equivalency. Shenamar, as it says, this is specked out in the Torah, Kolpeter Rechemli, all those who open the womb are mine. Benemar, and it says, Ach, you shall surely redeem the firstborn of man. And this dates back to the time the Jewish people were in Egypt. God smote the Egyptian firstborn, saved the Jewish firstborn, and that is when God acquired the firstborn who were supposed to be the Kohanim. Due to the story of the golden calf, they lost that privilege, and the Kohen took over on their behalf, the Kohanim, the Kohanic and Levite families, took over their respective duties, and therefore when a firstborn is, is when the firstborn is born, the first son, the father has to pay the coin, so to speak, to assume his duties. Now we get into some of the technicalities based to the Ein Ho'isha Chayebis Livdeis Esbenah, the wife, the woman, the mother of the baby, she does not have that obligation. Why not? She had the baby. She should have the obligation. The answer, my friends, is Shachayev. Lift day says Atzmei because only one who is obligated to redeem himself, who Shachayev lived day says Benay is obligated to redeem his son, and the mother is not obligated to redeem herself because this does not apply to females. Therefore, it is the father's mitzvah rather than the mother's mitzvah. What if for some reason the father never redeemed his son, which happens, we have had adult pigeon abends right here at Chabad of Encino. What happens if the father never redeemed his son? Then the answer is, when the son becomes of majority age, which is bar mitzvah, he has an obligation to redeem himself. Before that, it's problematic, although is, there is some discussion, but clearly it kicks in at Bar Mitzvah for him to redeem himself. And here we have a situation. Hayahu, 
Lifteis. If he had an obligation to redeem himself, or Benay Lifteis, and had an obligation to redeem his son, when there was the mass immigration of Russian Jews, suddenly Jews who never were exposed to Judaism for 70 years suddenly were exposed to new mitzvahs, bris, they had pijin aben, and, and so on. So you have the father and the son realize that they never had a pijin aben. Yivda'atz meitchila, so who takes precedence? And again, we're going to learn that pijin aben is not free, it costs money. What if the father simply doesn't have enough money to redeem himself and his son? Yivda'atz meitchila, he should redeem himself first, and then his son. So he takes precedence over his son. Or, in order, he comes before his son. If he only has enough for one, he should redeem himself. What if he has an obligation to redeem his son, and he also has to ascend to Jerusalem, because during the time that the Beis Hamikdash stood, Jews would ascend to Jerusalem three times a year, Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkot. And you know what? It cost money to ascend to Jerusalem. He doesn't have enough money for Pidgin Aben and for Jerusalem. What takes precedence? First, he redeems his son, and only then should he go and ascend to Jerusalem for the festival. And this is actually alluded to in... One verse in the order of the verse. Shanamra, as the verse says, You shall redeem the firstborn of your sons. And only afterwards in the verse, it says, And when you ascend to Jerusalem, don't come empty-handed. As I used to say in the olden days, that when a Jew comes to Jerusalem, the Torah says, Come, and bring your checkbook. But today nobody knows what a checkbook is. Come and bring your credit card so you can swipe. So the verse of redemption of firstborn comes before the verse dealing, the part of the verse dealing with the ascending of the Jew to Jerusalem during the festival. Hey, what if somebody, when someone redeems his son, is there a blessing to be said? Of course, like all mitzvahs, Mevorech, he makes a blessing. Asher Kedushan of Mitzvah who commanded us, who sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us with Sivonu, Al Pijin Haben, regarding the mitzvah of the redemption of the son. He then makes a bracha, Shechiyonu. By the way, if we make Shechiyonu by Pijin Haben, do we make Shechionu for a Brit Milah, for a circumcision? And here it breaks up into varying customs. The prevalent Sephardic custom is, yes, we make Shechionu. The prevalent Ashkenazi custom is, we don't. Why don't we make Shechionu in the Ashkenazi custom for a bris? The answer is because it's difficult to make Shechionu while the baby is in pain. So it's kind of a conflicting emotion. You know, the baby is screaming, and we're eating bagels and locks. So, all right, bagels and locks, that's a biblical commandment. But Shechiyonu, you can get away without. That's the Ashkenazi custom. Here in the Pidgin Aben, it doesn't even hurt. It's a, an all-around pleasurable mitzvah. So here there's clearly Shechiyonu. And afterwards, 
he gives the redemption to the Kohen. That is, if he does it for his son. So the blessing is, for the redemption of the son. But if he redeems himself, then the blessing has to change. To redeem the firstborn, because he means himself. And he also makes the Shachyonu blessing. This is a mitzvah which is observed in all places and in all times. Every one of these mitzvahs, the Rambam has been telling us, whether it's, reserved in Israel, whether it's observed in Israel only or Israel and the diaspora, or only in the time of the Beis Hamikdash, or even later. He says, this mitzvah in all times and in all places, and we know that we observe... How much is the redemption price? What is it? A million dollars? Five million dollars? How much, how much cost? Or as an old friend of mine who struggled with English used to say, How much cost Asocha? How much cost Asocha? He says, It's five Sloyim. The sloyim is what the shekel morphed into in to Mishne, in Mishnaic times. Shenem, as it says, ufduye or ufduyov mi ben chedesh tivde, and his redemption should be at the age of one month, and it's for five sloyim, five silver shekels. Now, is, does it have to be? Silver, it says, Bain Bekesev, it could be money. Bain Bekesev, or if there is no money, it could be the equivalent of five silver shekels or sloyim. Bain Minamitautl, Shagufan Mamit, it could be movable objects. Kinyin Ashkolim, like Shkolim. Shkolim is a movable object that has value, it's silver. The fecal, therefore, ain't paid in Bekarkos. What we cannot use is real estate. You can't do a pidyon aben with real estate. Mipnei shehein bekarkot, mipnei v'lei ba'avadim, and not with slaves. Mipnei, across the board in halacha, we say that whenever land is forbidden as a commodity, slaves are also forbidden as a commodity. Because the slave has been compared to land in Torah law. V'lei bishtoros, also not with documents, so you would not be permitted, I guess, to use a check. Certainly not an IOU or a pledge. Fisha'ain gufon momin because the piece of paper does not have value. The impodobohen, but if he did, ain't a podli, it's not redeemed. <coughs> By the way, nowadays we're supposed to use in the country we live in five silver uh, major currency coins. Here in America, it's five silver dollars. Not the make-believe dollar that they use today, but the real silver dollar, which costs a lot more than a dollar today. So when we make a pigeon aben, you've got to make sure that you have the dollars prepared. A veteran, experienced Kohen will come with the dollars and sell the dollars to you. Many times the Kohen, as an act of, uh, I guess, with social graces, gifts back the value to the baby as, as a gift, but that's up to the Kohen, we're going to learn about that, because that can actually present the problem in Halacha. Zayin 7, Kosav of Lakayin Shuchayv Lechamash Layim, what if the father writes a note? 
to the Cohen. An IOU, I guess he has a trust deed, a promissory note, that he owes him five sloim. So first of all, a promissory note is a promissory note. Chayyib Litenle is obligated to give it to him. But his son is not redeemed. So he wrote a note. He has an obligation, but the redemption never took place. No son lay Kaylee or Klee. What if he gave him a vessel, an item, that is not worth in the marketplace five sloyim? He can't sell it on eBay for five sloyim. But the Kohen said to me, this is worth five sloyim. Then being that the Kohen accepted it as a five sloyim equivalent, his son is considered redeemed. What if he gave the equivalent of five sloyim in parts to ten different Kohanim? So he gave a total of five sloyim, but not to one Kohen. Whether at one time, or concurrently, Yotzah, he fulfills his obligation. It doesn't say it necessarily has to be one Kohen. What if the Kohen wants to return the gift, the redemption money? There's no law against that. Sure, he can return it. However, he cannot give it to the coin knowing he's going to return it because then it's not, really, it's not a real giving. If his assumption is, ah, he's going to return it. Don't worry about it. If he did that, and he gave it back to him because he was counting on it, his son is not redeemed. Until he decides in his heart to give him a real gift. Once he gave him a real gift, if the Kohen then wants to return it, with pleasure, the Kohen could return it. There's no law against it. Now the Rambam gets into an interesting law, which actually we have in the Lulav and Esrig world as well. When it comes to Lulav and Esrig, it says, You must take to you. Our sages say, the Lulav and Esrig must belong to you. Therefore, when we give someone or lend someone our lulav and esrik to use, we tell them it's matana almanat lehachzir. Matana almanat lehachzir. I'm giving you a gift on the condition that you return it. That's an interesting halachic phraseology, different than earlier. Earlier, you weren't giving anything. Here, you're saying, I'm giving you a 100% gift. But the gift is only yours if, in fact, you return it. So that has the technical loophole of the best of both worlds. The gift is a gift, and the return must take place. And that works here, and it works for Lulav and Esther. So he says, If he specified and he says, I'm giving you these five sloyim on the condition that you return it. Here his son is redeemed. I'll review the note here because it's very interesting. A present given with the intent that it be returned is considered a valid gift. Thus the father's gift was was within the limits of the law. So it is acceptable. However, in the first instance, 
Since the present was not given wholeheartedly, it is as if it was never given. Nevertheless, receiving the redemption as a present with the stipulation that it be returned is frowned upon by our rabbis. Our sages don't like this whole idea. It's not the best way to go. And the Shulchan Aruch describes a Kohen who does this as having sinned. So it's not a good deal. Don't get into that kind of thing. Okay, that's what the notes on the Rambam says. Now, what about the deal of a Kohen or a Levi? Kohanim or Leviim, Kohanim and Leviim, Piturim, Piturim, Mipijin Aben, are exempt from Pijin Aben, Mikal out of a logical process called a kalbachamra, something more severe is deduced from something less. In Yisrael Bamidbar, if the Kohanim were able to exempt the Israelites in the desert by becoming their exchange, as we learned the whole portion, Din who certainly that the Kohan and Levi should be able to exempt themselves. So therefore, simply speaking, the son of a Kohen or the son of a Levi is not obligated in Pijin Aben. And I, I, you know, the, the, it's actually quite unusual to have a Pijin Aben because these are the conditions that have to take place. Number one, the woman has to marry not a Kohen and not a Levi. Number two, the child born has to be a male and not a female. And number three, it has to be a normal birth as we will learn and not a Caesarean birth. So I remember clearly when my oldest son, Yossi, now Rabbi Yossi, was born, my father of blessed memory was so happy because it was one of the first Pidyon Abens in our family. Why is that? I'm the third in order of seven children. Because my oldest sister married a Levi. So they couldn't have a pidgin Abed. My second sister married a, a Kohen. They couldn't have a pidgin Abed. Actually, my third sister who got married after me, but right after me, she married a Kohen as well. They couldn't have a pidgin Abed. Finally, I'm the Israelite. And Baruch Hashem, we had a son first. So this was a big simcha. So this is the point that a Kohen and a Levi are exempt from Pidyon Abed. Furthermore, not only if the father is a Kohen or a Levi, but even if the mother is a Kohen or a Levi, or a Koheness or a Levia, Yisrael, if an Israelite child, Habba, which who, who comes from, was born from Minakehenes, from a mother who was a Kohen, or Minalevi, or the mother who was a Levi, Potter, this case is also exempt. Because the main connection is opening the womb of the mother. In this case, the mother is a Kohenes or a Levi. the mother, opening the womb of the mother within Israel. So now, let's get technical. What if 11 Levia, the woman, the mother of the baby is a Levi, but she conceived from a relationship with a non-Jew. 
which according to Jewish laws we learned extensively is not permissible, but it could happen. It shouldn't happen like it happens. So what if she conceives in a relationship with a non-Jew, but no potter, her son is exempt. Why? Because despite the fact that the father is a non-Jew, we're not even looking at that. The fact is that she's a Levia. And because she's a Bas Levi, because she's the daughter of a Levi, Pidgin Ben does not apply. However, interesting technicality here, Bekehenes, the daughter of a Kohen, Hamuberes, who conceived, from a non-Jew. So a Kohen's daughter had a relationship with a non-Jew, which again is forbidden by Jewish law, but it could happen. In her case, her son needs a pigeon aben. What? The Levi woman doesn't need a pigeon aben, even though she conceives from a non-Jew. The Kohen woman does? Yes. Because now, her relationship with this non-Jew has disqualified her from being an active Kohenus. Because a Kohen woman cannot have a relationship with a non-Jew. And if she does, she cannot be a Kohen anymore. So that's why the Levi could retain her exemption from Pidyan Aben. The Kohen woman can't. Which is, again, an interesting technicality. It's not a sweet story, but it's an interesting technicality. What if a Kohen begets a son who is disqualified from being a Kohen because he married a woman that he shouldn't, such as a Kohen marrying a divorced woman which is forbidden by Torah law. And all of these laws were covered extensively earlier in the laws of marriages and forbidden marriages. So here we have a Kohen who fathered a cholo, an unfit Kohen son, what if the father died within the 30 days? The pigeon aben has to be done after 30 days. That's when the obligation kicks in. So as long as it's 30 days, the father is a Kohen. So the baby is exempt, but if the father dies during the 30-day period, the son is obligated to redeem himself because his father is no longer here, and he does not inherit his father's Kohen status. The father didn't acquire that exemption privilege. However, if the father died after the baby was 30 days old and more, then the baby does not have to redeem himself when he becomes bar mitzvah. As we learned earlier, why? Because the obligation for Pidgin Aben kicked in when the baby turned more than 30 days, and the father is a Kohen, even though the son is a disqualified Kohen, so there's an exemption. The exemption is recorded, <coughs> wherever it's recorded, in heaven. And the fact that the father died means nothing. The plot thickens. What if there is a maidservant who is liberated? Or there is a non-Jew who converts. While they were pregnant, the old, when they gave birth as 100% Jews, 
And the law is the same for a Jew and a convert. Even though the conception took place in a state of non-sanctity as Jews, because they were not yet Jewish, the slave woman was still a slave, and the non-Jew was a non-Jew, but being that they were born into a state of holiness, the obligation kicks in, opening the womb of a Jew, here the baby of this slave woman who was liberated or non-Jew converted, opened the womb of a Jew. It's very simple. So therefore the obligation kicks in. <clears throat> what if we really don't know whether this baby was born before or after her conversion? So we're not sure whether the pigeon aben kicks in. Here the old principle kicks in. If the Kohen wants his five sloyim, there's only one way that he can get it. He has to come and prove that the baby was born after the conversion. Yudalid hakusis vehashiv choshayoldu. What if a non-Jewish woman and the maidservant had a baby? Vehachakach nizgairu, and then they converted. Vinishtacharu, or they were liberated. Vyoldu vladachar, and now they have a second child. The problem is that the second child technically is not a firstborn even though the second child is a firstborn as a Jew, once she's Jewish. Here there's an exemption. I'm opening up the womb. And this is a womb that gave birth earlier. Makes no difference that when she gave birth earlier, the child was not a Jew. Similarly speaking, if a child follows a miscarriage, or a stillborn, <clears throat> the word nafel means a child who dies under the age of 30 days. What is considered for this purpose a birth, and what is not? The answer is called nafel she'imetmei the only, the type of birth which brings about a, an impurity condition in the mother, which we learned in great detail earlier, what does and what doesn't. Then if it does bring about an impurity within the mother, then the baby who follows is not considered a firstborn. However, any birth where the mother does not become rendered impure, for example, a woman who gives birth to a fetus that doesn't even look like a fetus, it looks more like a fish or a grasshopper, or if somebody miscarries on the 40th day after conception, a very early pregnancy miscarriage, and this is not considered a birth, and the baby that's born afterwards is considered a firstborn, and again, this is discussed in great detail earlier, and we covered all of this. What if the fetus in the mother's womb was cut off piece by cut off piece by piece and removed, I guess to save the mother's life? Remember, medicine then was very different than medicine today. Then the child that comes after is not considered firstborn. 
Ben Shmei Nechadosh and Mordechai baby is eight months old. Shahitzirei who caused his his head came forth out of the womb. Uchai, and at that moment the baby was alive. but then the baby returned into the womb of and died. V'chein ben Tisha Shemais, or a nine-month-old baby who died, and he put out his head, and he brought it back. And then the brother came out, the one that was born, is not considered an opening of the womb, because the head of the first one came out. The rule is, once the forehead comes forth, it exempts anything that follows. This is a famous ruling, Tezayin Yetzadeif, in a C-section, a Caesarean section, which means it's not a natural birth. And the baby that comes after the C-section baby, even if it was natural, they're both exempt. The C-section is exempt because it didn't open the womb. It was not a normal birth. The second one is also not a firstborn because there was a firstborn. Ah, it was a C-section? Okay. Yud Zayin, now comes the question of when? When does the obligation kick in? The answer is, once the baby has lived a full 30 days. So for all practical purposes, the obligation kicks in at the very beginning of day 31. Shenemar, as it says, Ufuduyov mi ben chedesh tifta. And the redemption should be a month. Mesa ben b'seyesh What if the child perished, died within 30 days? Vafilu b'yem ha even on the 30th day. So that the child did not live 30 full days. By the way, that's the definition of a nephil. Someone who dies within the first 30 days. In that case, there's no, in, in common Jewish practice, there's no shiva observed, there's no kaddish observed, because a baby has not considered as having really established life until he's lived for 30 days plus. The baby was diagnosed as a child who can't live a year. There's no obligation for the five sellers, for the pigeon I bet. Now, what if the father said, you know what, times are tough, money is scarce, let me give the Kohen money, and at least the Kohen will have it when the 30 days kick in. What if he beat him to it, and he gave it to the Kohen, he should return it, because the baby died. But if the baby died after 30 days, then he doesn't have to return it. And if he didn't give it, then he should give it because the baby lived for 30 days. What if somebody redeemed his son within the 30 days? Again, he is doing it before the mitzvah. If he said to the Kohen, I am redeeming my son now. The Kohen says, what are you doing? He's only three weeks old. Well, I'm getting a jump on it. I'm doing it now. Then the child is not redeemed. It's not a redemption. But if he said to him, I'm giving it to you now, but it's going to kick in. It's going to be effective. After 30 days, then his son is considered redeemed. 
Even though, you know what? The money is gone. The Cohen went straight to Vegas and put it all on red 18. The money was lost. It makes no difference because that statement of it kicks in later. The deed was done earlier, but the effectiveness is later. You test 19. What if somebody is unsure whether he's obligated in a pigeon or not? Then he's exempt. Again, the rule is it's money. Let the Kohen come and prove that he's obligated. Any situation of doubt, he doesn't have to do it. What if the father died, the baby was under 30 days old? Can we assume it was done or not done? We assume that it was not done. Because it wouldn't be done under normal circumstances until after 30 days. The son has an obligation to redeem himself when he gets bar mitzvah until he can prove that his father did an early redemption and said it should kick in later. A sister scenario, what if the father died after 30 days and we don't know if there was a pigeon I've been or not? I mean, I don't understand that because they should just look at the video. But maybe they didn't have a video. We can assume that this son was redeemed. Until he is informed that he was not redeemed, that would be the unusual situation. I'm just going to have some water. I made a bracha earlier. Now the Rambam goes into a series of situations which in one form or another produce or may produce doubt. Scenario one. If somebody's wife never had a firstborn, so that's for sure, the baby that will be born will be firstborn. And then the doctor said, Mazel Tov, twins, a boy and a girl. They have no idea whether the boy was born first or the girl was born first. And the father screaming at the doctor, which one was born first? He says, who cares? They're both healthy. Because the doctor doesn't appreciate pigeon bed. You know what the Kayan gets? Nothing. Because... Maybe the girl was born first. What if she gave birth to two males? We don't know which male is the firstborn. It doesn't matter. He gives the Kohen five cellars. Because in either event, he has a firstborn. The plot thickens. One of these two twin boys died within 30 days. Potter, now he's exempt. Maybe the living... Child is firstborn, maybe he's not. Let the Kohen prove it. What if the father died? Whether within 30 or after 30 days. I'm sorry. Okay, let's do it again. The father died. Whether within 30 days. Or after 30 days. Whether these two twin boys divided their estate or not. Either way, the estate owes five sellers to the Kohen. 
Hanachosim, because the state, the estate became obligated because this father had a firstborn. Shtein Noshov, I want to pause for a moment and, and share a beautiful teaching that I was privileged to hear more than once from my father of blessed memory. We observe the ritual of Pidyon Aben. The Kohen approaches the father and he says, can I help you? Yes. And the father says, yes. Ishti Ayisraelis, my wife, who is a Jewish woman, she gave birth to her firstborn. So the Kohen says, really? Wow. Bemai boy what do you prefer? Do you prefer five dollars? Five sellers? Or your firstborn son? So the father answers, I prefer my firstborn son. So the Kohen says, this is good. He then gives the coin the five sellers and makes the bracha. Mazel tov. There's wine, whatever it says in the sitter. So my father of blessed memory says, that's the strangest question in the world. What do you prefer, your son or five dollars? I mean, come on. You any you expect any person in the world to answer the five dollars? So my father said, you have to look at the words. He says, Bin my boys today, what do you prefer? Bincha Bechirecha, your firstborn son. Where do we find the expression? B'ni b'chori Mitzrayim. B'ni b'chori Yisrael. My son, my firstborn Israel. Every Jew is a firstborn, so to speak, to Hashem. What do you prefer? Your son to become godly? And a soldier in the army of Hashem? A firstborn son to Israel? Or do you prefer Chomeshloyim? Or do you want your son to grow up to be a Chomeshloyim child that is going to give everything away and sacrifice everything for five dollars? So the Kayan says, Mister, your son is 31 days old today or 30 days old today on the 31st day. You have to decide right now. You want a firstborn proud son of Israel who's going to give nachas to God or you want to raise a son who'll do anything for a buck. That's how my father in- interpreted this seemingly strange conversation between the Kohen and the father. Back to 21, to the complex scenarios which create doubt. What if a man had two wives, both of them never had a firstborn, and together. They had two boys. Each one had a boy. The father, who is the father of both these boys, has to give ten, $10 to the Kayan. What if one of them died within 30 days? And if he gave it to one Kayan in advance, the Kayan should give him a refund. If he gave it to two Kayan, we can't force the Kayan to give him back. Because he never specked out, this redemption is for this child, this redemption is for this child. The Chol Echad and every one of the Kayanim, Mehem Yacholim, can say, Go get it back from the other guy. Chav Beis 22, a man of two wives, who never had a firstborn son, never had a firstborn child. And these two women gave birth to a boy and a girl. One had a boy and one had a girl. Or 
two boys and a girl. He gives five slayim to the kain. Because when his two wives had a boy and a girl, one had a boy. When his two wives had two boys and a girl, one had a boy first. It's impossible in these two scenarios that at least one child would not have been a firstborn. What if two girls were born and a boy? Aha! It's possible that none of the wives had a firstborn son. Or, two boys and two girls. So it's possible that both wives gave birth to a girl first. Then you do as an illusion. We don't know which came first. Ain't Kandakayan Klum. The Kayan can't demand anything. Shani Yamer, because I can argue and say, that in each case, girl, boy, girl came first. Chabdalid, the Platik, and Shtein Noshav, if somebody had two wives, Achaz Bichar, Achaz Bichar, one had a firstborn child and the other one never did. And they gave birth to two sons. Okay. So at least one of them has a firstborn son. But now the sons became mixed up. That's why they put tags in the hospital today. He has to give five shekels to the Kayan, five Slayim, because he has a firstborn here. But what if one of them died within 30 days? There may not even be a firstborn here. Ha'av Potter, the father is exempt. Mesa'av, the father died. Then the estate should be charged five sellers. If these two women gave birth to a boy and a girl, two boys and a girl, the Kohen has nothing. Because I can argue. The one who never had a firstborn gave birth to a girl. And afterwards a boy. The other one who already had a firstborn child gave birth to the male. The plot thickens. Two women of two, two wives of two different husbands each never had a firstborn. And they gave birth to two males. When these males are mixed up, but we don't know who the father is. Each one has to give five cells. Because he may be the father of the firstborn. Nosnu, and they gave. I'm sorry. If two wives of two husbands who never had a, a firstborn, and they both had males, then each one has to give, because each one for sure had a firstborn son. We just don't know which son. Nosno, what if they gave one of them died within 30 days. If they gave to two kohanim and yechelim them, then they can't get the money back because every kohen could say go to the other kohen. They gave to one kohen. Then this is the process of how a refund could be acquired. One father writes a document authorizing the other one to represent him to the Kohen. And he takes the document. He should get back from the Kohen. He walks over to the Kohen and he says, the money is either mine 
or it's my friends, the one who has to get the refund, and here's a document. What if a male and a female were born and then they got mixed? Always Purim, the fathers are exempt. But obviously the child is a firstborn. When he grows up and becomes Bar Mitzvah, he has to redeem himself. Similar situation, but different. We learned earlier that if a woman loses her husband, before she remarries, she should wait 90 days and get married on the 91st day. Why? Because we're not sure if she has a baby, whether it will be a short pregnancy from the new husband or a full-term pregnancy from the old husband. This is what we call in Yiddish, a zibital, a child born in the seventh month. Could be in the beginning of the seventh month. So here she didn't wait. And she got married too soon. We don't know who the father is. What we know is that she now has a firstborn. Always Purim, the fathers are exempt because it's doubtful whether they are fathers. See, today with a DNA test, it's no problem, I guess. And the son, when he reaches 13, Bar Mitzvah has to redeem himself. So also a woman who gives birth to a firstborn. One second. That's what we just learned. Okay. I, I spelled that all out. I'm sorry. And the son has to redeem himself. If she had two females and a male, two females and a two males, and the Khan, the Kayan Klum, here the Kohen has nothing. Because it's impossible to prove that a male was born first. Two wives of two husbands. One had a baby, and therefore she already had a firstborn, and the other didn't. They both had a boy. Then obviously the one whose wife did not yet have a firstborn has to give five slayim to the Kohen. But... If there was a male and female born, and we're not sure, has nothing. And finally, we have Yod Lamed, the last paragraph. Yod if she gave birth to two males and a female. Then the one whose wife did not yet give birth to a firstborn, gives Hamashleim, Shleim Yiftel al Bishnei Sveikas, because you need to have two doubts to get away with it. Imishta Yolda Zachar Bovad Chayev, if his wife had a boy alone, he's obligated to be Yolda Zachar and Akeva Chayev, and if she had the boy and the girl, he would be obligated, Elim Ken Yolda Nekeva Tchila, unless she had the girl first, Helba Dabarachak, being that this is highly unusual, Yitin Pijene, he has to give the redemption. Let me just take a minute. Before we wrap this up and go back to 29, <clears throat> let's review 29 again.
No, I'm sorry. This is not 29. This is for 28. This is for 30. We just studied this. <clears throat> Please forgive the confusion. We just studied this. Again, to repeat again. Two women of two, two wives of two husbands. One had previously had a firstborn and one didn't. Who had, as he says in 30, two males and a female. They had triplets. Two males and a female. No, it's not triplets. She had two males and a female. That's what was born. And we don't know what was born to whom. So the one whose wife never gave birth, he has to pay five sloyim. Because there's two doubts here. If his wife had a boy only, then he would be obligated. But if she had a boy and a girl, he'd be obligated. Unless she had the girl first. So we have, maybe she had a boy, maybe she didn't. If she had a boy and a girl, maybe she had the girl first. So this is a distant possibility. Let's look here at a note. Very interesting. More, more specifically, there are five possibilities regarding this situation. Possibility one. The woman who had not given birth before gave birth to one male. And the other woman gave birth to a male and a female. Remember, there are two males and a female born. So one possibility is that the woman who has not given birth till now gave birth to a male. Then there is an obligation. Or she gave birth to two males and the other woman gave birth to a female. There's an obligation. She gave birth to a female and then a male, and the other woman gave birth to a male. Then there's no obligation. She gave birth to a female and the other woman gave birth to two males. Then there's no obligation. Since her husband would be obligated in the first three of these situations, he's considered as obligated because of higher probability. That's the logic here. And again, the Rambam spent the last many paragraphs giving these different scenarios. Uh, They are interesting halachic scenarios. Okay, end of chapter 11.